Hey listeners, it's Andy, and I'm here to see if you've tried Audible yet. With an incredible selection of audiobooks, it is the perfect way to dive deeper into the stories upon which some of your favorite films are based. Audible members get a credit every month to redeem on any audiobook they like, plus access to a huge plus catalog of podcasts, originals, and more. Just imagine listening to the books that inspired movies like The Born Identity, Moneyball, or sci-fi classics like Dune. The best part? You can try Audible free for 30 days and get your first audiobook on them. It's a great way to experience storytelling while supporting this podcast. To get started, go to thenextreel.com slash audible or text thenextreel to 500-500. Listen to incredible audiobooks and support the show today. That's thenextreel.com slash audible. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. In just a matter of seconds, you're going to hear a classic episode of this show from back in the day when we called ourselves Movies We Like. It took us a while to settle into the show's format, so you'll notice some differences as you listen to these episodes. For instance, it takes us a bit of time to actually get into the conversation about the movie. Things like that. But we're still proud of the conversations about the movies themselves, and we think they're worth keeping in the library. So enjoy these episodes from our back catalog. And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreel.com. So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. So usually we do the the uh what do we usually do the guilty pleasure we usually yes we usually have our annual guilty pleasure when we uh kind of take a take leave of the show we kind of pre-record our our guilty pleasures this is kind of a behind the scenes conversation isn't it wow. yeah because i'm well i mean people know we take we take breaks it would be ridiculous for us to do a, sh- <laughs> a show every week i mean we do enough shows but to do it every week we would be like we would be maroons who would people need a break right i mean <laughs> The world knows people need a break. <laughs> yes, they do. They definitely do. Anyway, so we do this thing. We take a break because we're not maroons. And we no. take a break and we do our little vacations. And it usually coincides with my vacation, not yours. <laughs> I just noticed that after five years. <laughs> Anyhow, this year we're doing something different. We're not doing guilty pleasures. We're doing uh, we're doing something different. What What are we doing, Andy? Can you... Do you have the wherewithal or the wits to describe what we're doing this year? Well, it's not that we have uh, run out of guilty pleasures. I have a feeling we could make that go on forever. (laughs) Oh, believe me. And as soon as we decided not to do it, man, they just started coming out of the woodwork for me. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. But no, we decided that uh, we would spice things up a little bit and actually challenge each other to pick a movie. And so we have what we are calling the TNR Vacation Challenge. And so I'm going to pick... That's the best we could do. That's the best name that we could come up with. It's pretty terrible. But uh, yeah, so I'm going to pick, or I'm going to throw Pete a uh, kind of a a genre or a type of film that uh, he needs to pick, and he's going to do the same for me. That's what we're going to do. Oh my goodness, did I have fun researching this. Do you know what happened? You know what I started with? I started with unusual. Well, I'm glad you did research. I did. Oh man, I was a basket case. I did. Uh, I started looking for uh, strange film genres. Like I started with just the genre, and that's that's where I actually ended up with. But not as strange as some of the ones that I found. And I wanted to share with you some that I found to see if you are in fact a connoisseur of some of these films. Can we start with a quiz? Hit me up. All right. So the first, I'm going to give you a genre. 
that is in this category of, of odd film genre, and you your challenge is to, A, see if you can describe the genre, and B, give me at least one film that is uh, uh, named as one of the top films in the genre. Okay? Wow. Do you understand uh, the rules? I understand the rules, yeah. Oh, all right, here we go. I don't know how I'll do, but I'll give it a try. <laughs> I assure you, uh, I, I will be surprised if you do well. So the bar is set very low for you. So really, the world's your oyster. I am ready. The first genre, Andy, that I would like you to define is the psychobiddy film. Can you tell me what a psychobiddy film is? A psychobiddy would be, well, it, <laughs> using the pejorative biddy and one who is psycho... I imagine it is a genre about a crazy girlfriend or crazy ex-girlfriend or crazy female in one's life. (laughs) Okay, we could get even more specific with that. Uh, That would be a gothic set, Granny Run Amok, a gray-haired melodrama, a bitter-bitty rivalry, haunting hagsploitation, and notable films, Andy, in this gothic grannies run amok. (laughs) Whatever happened to Baby Jane? Die, die, my darling. Whoever saw Auntie Rue? Or whatever happened to Aunt Alice? <laughs> wow. <laughs> this was uh, started, apparently, uh, this started from Robert Aldrich's 1962 film, Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, starring Betty Davis and Joan Crawford as the uh, forgotten sisters isolated from the rest of the world in a crumbling mansion. They defined the genre of the psycho bitty film. Are you ready for the second uh, second genre? I sure am. This is fun. The Meat Pie Western. <laughs> the meat one, pie. This one was like made for you. Was it? Yes. The Meat Pie Western? Yes. Well, it sounds like a, I, I'm not quite sure, a Meat Pie Western. It'd be just a Western that is overly bloody and violent. Oh, no, Andy, but I'm going to give you uh, a couple of films and see if you can pick it up. Uh, top films in this uh, in this category, and, and maybe it'll help to... to to note that it it's a play on the spaghetti western which we know so well on this show does that help you at all the spaghetti western fits in this well the spaghetti western is an italian made western the meat pie western might be a plain british western, western? no no i'm gonna tell you shepherd's pie <laughs> it's an it'd be the shepherd's pie western <laughs> I guess it'd be an Aussie Western, maybe? Yes, Andy, ding, ding, ding. The Kangaroo Kid, The Man from Snowy River, Quigley Down Under. Uh, These all fit in the category of meat pie Western. Well done. Would never, yeah, that's great. (laughs) Here's the next one. Bruceploitation. Bruceploitation. Mm -hmm. Now, you might think this was the Aussie one, but in fact, you'd be wrong. I was going to say it felt like it... uh... (laughs) It felt like that. Um, but then I'm going like, well, maybe it's um, not hmm. Bruce Willis. No, I'm not a- Bruce Willis. <laughs> <laughs> Movies that exploit Bruce Willis. <laughs> well, I mean, you could almost say that Nicolas Cage has created like a, a cage exploitation. Cage exploitation. No, that's that's a fair <laughs> parallel. This, in fact, is uh, this is any film starring <laughs> a Bruce Lee lookalike specifically made after Bruce Lee's death. And they oh. starred films, uh, they starred actors like Bruce Lee L.I., Bruce Lee L.E., or Dragon Lee, 
uh, and they were ripoffs. All of them are ripoffs of Bruce Lee's classic films like Enter the Dragon with titles like Re-Enter the Dragon or Enter Two Dragons or <laughs> Enter Another Dragon. And and they were all designed to get people to think they were watching a Bruce Lee film. Uh, this was another one that I thought you would like, Nudist Camp Films. Uh, these were exploitation films from the 1930s through the early 1960s that featured nude women with a few men that the camera largely ignored, many pretending to have educational slant. So there you go. Um, oh. We have, uh, oh, this was one of my favorite ones. And this is another back to the quiz. We're back in character. Are you ready? Here we go. Sea Life Sport Movies. Sea Life Sport Movies? Mm-hmm. I mean, Sea Life movies, I would think, would be like Free Willy or um, things with animals in the mm-hmm. sea. Yeah, well, you would think but that. But sea life, sea life sport, I mean, would that involve like our sport, a.k.a. like fishing of them? Mm, or no. would that involve like racing uh, while you're riding on the back of a dolphin? <laughs> you're getting <laughs> sport. You're getting closer and yet still worlds away. These would be absurdist films starring massive mutant sea creatures that engage specifically in sports. Such notable titles as The Calamari Wrestler, Crab Goalkeeper, and Crust. This comes largely out of uh, Japan. Uh, that uh, these these you know you think about uh, Godzilla. It's like a spinoff of these giant uh, monster films, but the the monsters are actually uh, vastly more athletic. And and the funniest ones, if you look up Crab Goalkeeper, you'll totally get it. It is a giant crab in a goal on a field, and it's brilliant. Wow! It makes me want to see all of them. Um, uh, the, uh, let's see, crust. Does it, does it really? Or does it, uh, I would, I would go so far as to watch clips from them. I think that's probably as much as I would do. I, I almost just, you thank your lucky stars. I almost gave this to you as your challenge. So there's okay. that. You could have done that, but this was the last one. And I think you're going to have an easy one, easy time with this one. Andy, could you please tell me what a mockbuster is? A mockbuster? Oh, really? <laughs> Would be a, a fake blockbuster or a spoof of blockbusters? Yes. Like like um, another, what are they, like another superhero movie or all the scary movie series or... Right. Uh, or, yeah. Or, like, for example, or, if I if I gave you one of the notable films, Transmorphers, you would know that that would be... Yeah, that would be the Transformers. Oh, so, the, okay, now, now is that... You're talking about like the 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 uh, the studio that does those ripoff movies, right? At like not snakes, snakes on a train, snakes on a plane. Right. Not was... not necessarily the that whole franchise that was just the spoof silly films. No, like... no, no. These are serious movies or, or movies that are meant to be taken seriously to leverage the the uh, cinema right. gestalt of the time people. to confuse people. Right. 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 What's the studio that releases Transmorphers? Asylum. Asylum. That's what it is. Asylum is the company that releases all these uh, these ripoff films. Yes. That Jeez. are designed purposefully to confuse um, people when they're buying them. <laughs> right. Yes. Like. Uh, yeah. Right. Right. They have right. A ton of them. They do. They've got uh, hundreds, literally yeah. hundreds of them through, uh, you know, since the early '90s. Uh, they've been doing this, but that's uh, they they have defined a genre. The mockbuster. There you wow. go. And and I would I will tell you you are like I'm not picking any of these genres for my for my uh, film selection. Okay. Shall we do? It? Do you want to? Well, I've talked good. for too long. You want to go first? Sure. I was really worried that you were going to actually make me pick one of these. 
<laughs> no, no, sir. Oh man, that would have really been awkward. Although, if it was Mockbuster, I could have always done Sharknado. So yeah, or Sharknado two, or three, or four. Okay, so I don't have anything funny to talk about like you do. I didn't do nearly the research you did trying to find something clever to pick. Um, mine was pretty well. I was I was torn between two choices. The first choice, uh, which I'm not going to give you, but I'll at least say it, is that um, you you know often talk about how much you don't like horror films. I do. And although we have talked about some horror films, and then every now and then you surprise me by uh, saying, "Oh yeah, I, I watched that movie like last week." <laughs> you were talking about was it The Forest or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, because that. of what's like, her what name you... with the with the, the uh, what's the show I like so much? Game of Thrones. Yeah, it, she was I'm in Natalie like, Dormer. What are you doing? It. Well, yeah, but it's still a horror movie. I'm like, what are you doing watching that? It's a horror movie. You always talk about how much you don't like watching horror a movies. Man's got to watching. have priorities, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> so I was going to make you pick your favorite horror movie that we haven't talked about. Okay. Well, but instead, I, I, you're not going to do that for me. <laughs> No, I'm not. It said I thought this would be a little more fun uh, because I don't think that uh, we've talked about any film um, with this particular uh, um, technique used in it, and uh, unless I'm wrong. But um, I am going to have you pick your favorite film featuring stop motion animation. <gasps> oh, that's now, a great be- selection. Now, it could be the whole film done in stop motion, like, uh, you know, Corpse Bride or, or Nightmare Before Christmas or Fantastic Mr. Fox. Or it can be one that just features it, like any of the Ray Harryhausen films, something yeah. like that. You've got a wide variety of films to choose from. And that is uh, what I'm having you pick. That's fantastic, Andy. What a good choice. I think I already have films in mind. This is great. Excellent. Okay. Uh, so I also, uh, besides the whole litany of other categories that I really enjoyed <laughs> researching, I also <laughs> had two uh, two options. The first one was to try to figure out a way, and I'll tell you, I did not pick this one, but to try to figure out a way to come up with a genre that would so closely define Hudson Hawk that you would have no choice but to choose it. <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to do something like such a narrow definition that there was just one film. (laughs) I did not. I did not do that, Andy. I did not. I I also, you know, this it's funny. I came back to horror too, but I, you know, I'm not a huge fan of horror like you are, and so I decided to uh, to spin on it just a little bit. So what I am asking you to do this year, Andy, is to come up with your very favorite. End of the world, apocalyptic, uh, end of days, dystopic comedy. Comedy. Mm-hmm. And now, before you feel like you're totally stumped, there are a lot of films that I feel like would be categorized here. Like, for example, uh, we've already talked about Shaun of the Dead. Uh, that would be a perfect sort of end of days comedy that we've already talked about, so you can't choose it. Sure. So that's what I'm looking for, and you can't choose Ghostbusters. Why not? Eh, <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so our the 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 challenge is out. We've got a favorite film featuring stop motion animation, animation, and favorite uh, uh, end of days comedy. That sounds like a fun pair. I think so too. 
these are going to fall uh, near the end of June, beginning of July. So that's when we will actually uh, have this uh, challenge. I think we're going to be announcing it at the end of our Fritz Lang series. Yeah, so that's that's coming up in like a month or something, right? Somewhere like that. Yeah, as soon as we finish Shane Black, then we'll jump into Fritz Lang. Then we'll have a listener's choice, and then we'll do our vacation challenge. Perfect. Perfect, perfect. I think with that, Andy, we should tell the people where we're from. Where are we from? This is The Next Reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, the second in our series on the work of writer-director Shane Black with Tony Scott's 1991 action comedy, The Last Boy Scout. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show anywhere the finest podcasts are served, even YouTube. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook at The Next Reel. And if you're the kind of person that looks for creative ways to break through a defensive line, then you're just the sort who's ready to draw against The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag GuessTheMovieChallenge. And with that... Let's check in with Game Master Stephen Smart, who is busy setting up an elaborate underground gambling franchise revolving around the weekly Instagram game. Hey guys, uh, this week we leapt back to the 80s for a late Samuel Fuller effort, White Dog from 1982, starring Christy McNichol and Paul Winfield. At Cotton Science nailed it on Image 3, so congrats at Cotton Science, you are entered once again into the 2016 Pony Prize hat. As always, a new challenge starts on Monday, so thanks guys, and see you later. We, uh, we do have a uh, plot spot, and it, it almost made me feel bad about Lethal Weapon, almost. Almost, yeah. Ben said, What I love about Lethal Weapon is the characters. Rig and Murtaugh are a great buddy cop duo. The suicidal crazy cop teamed up with the veteran who's ready to retire makes for a pair that actually might make sense working together. Also, the General and Joshua make for a great pair of over-the-top villains. I think I did a better job than you guys did at turning off my logical brain and just enjoying the wackiness. Yes, this isn't even close to real police work, but it's the movies. The final fight was a bit too much, though, for even me. Still, I definitely enjoy action films a lot, and this is a classic. Your rank 107, my rank 54. Pretty yeah, high. yeah, he ranked it high. I, I think he's probably right, and just, once again, the nature of us doing this show probably caused us to overthink it a little bit, don't you think? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's right where it belongs. I'm not saying I'd change any of my votes, I'm just saying maybe we were a little hard. Oh, never mind. Andy, let's do trailers. <laughs> You know, I'm I'm pretty excited about this. I am going to talk about the uh, the. I guess it's they're labeling it a teaser for Doctor Strange, even though it is kind of a full length trailer. But I guess considering how many trailers they crank out for each movie these days, yeah. it's uh you know a two minute teaser. I guess is maybe the norm for at least these types of movies. Doctor Strange is uh, he was a comic book character that I never really read when I was younger because he always seemed so weird and creepy. And I just think as a kid, it was just not the sort of easy superhero to click with. So I never knew anything about Doctor Strange other than he just looked weird. Uh, Cut to now when I know it's going to be part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I'm generally excited about most of them. Uh, I think it's probably fair to say all of them, at least to see what they do with them. And I again, I didn't know anything about this character, but watching this teaser... It was really interesting. It's this character who 
uh, apparently lives in a world where there's uh, multiple realities and and he kind of learns to kind of move between them. So there's this level of mysticism and uh, kind of controlling these different levels of, of reality. And I, uh, I gotta say, Benedict Cumberbatch looks just fantastic as the uh, as as Doctor Strange, like a really interesting character. I can't wait to see what he brings to the table. But not just him. I mean, it is just a fantastic cast from top to bottom. Aside from Cumberbatch, you have Rachel McAdams, Tilda Swinton as the Ancient One, Mads Mikkelsen. You've got uh, Chewie Ejiofor in there, Michael Stuhlbarg, Benedict Wong. It's a great cast of people. And I'm really excited to see uh, kind of what this story is all about. I, I think it's going to be very refreshing to see a superhero story that has this type of take on the world that uh, is going to give us something a little bit different than what we get out of so many of the superhero films. Yeah, I think you're right. I think, weirdly, I am less enthusiastic about this than you are. And that feels I'm, I'm really uncomfortable with that. Uh, because everything you just said is right. In fact, <laughs> this is the role Tilda Swinton was born to play, an ageless bald thing. Uh, she she looks she looks great as the teacher. I love watching Benedict Cumberbatch get knocked out, get his uh, spirit knocked out of his of this physical plane. Uh, trailer showcases a lot of the cool sort of uh, mystical effects uh, of the film. I think it looks generally really great. You're right; it's got a great cast. This is just part of the the. It's part of the comic book universe that I did not get into. And so the only commentary I have on the production of the film is Benedict Cumberbatch doesn't look old enough to my eye. Like, it always felt like Doctor Strange was wizened and older, and it feels like I look at the promotional pics of Cumberbatch with the white streak, the iconic Doctor Strange streak in his hair, and it just looks painted there and not very natural. And so that's the only thing. I mean, it just feels like something I don't know, and so I guess I reserve judgment, and and we'll see what happens. Um, but it certainly looks beautiful, and um, you know, I, I mostly I'm very excited about the next phase of the Marvel Universe. I read another piece today about the the uh, the weirder uh, uh, turns that are going to be taking in the the cinematic universe after uh, Civil War, leading up to Inhumans, and and so uh, you know I'm excited to see what comes of it. I think this is part of that transformation. I think it should be um, should be interesting to watch. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. I, I think. Uh... I don't know. I, I just really intrigued by what they are going to do here. Uh, Scott Derrickson is directing it, and uh, you know he's behind uh, such films as Sinister, which I didn't see, but that uh, is one that definitely piqued my curiosity. Uh, the Day the Earth Stood Still, the remake, which wasn't that great. The Exorcism of Emily Rose. Um, he's a guy who I think has uh, has his hand in kind of the the horror world right now and making some really interesting things. So I think that tapping into him. Might be a good idea for this one. I'm I'm curious to see what he brings to the table. He wrote Devil's Knot. Did you like that? Do you remember? I didn't that see one? that one. Hmm. Nope. No, it's. Uh, I don't think I even heard of that one. It was uh, Colin Firth and Reese Witherspoon. You know, it was good. Mm. It was. Uh, it's a. It was, was it? a. It was good. 
What, another Adam McGoyan film, huh? I feel like this is another one of those examples of of a, a relatively unknown director that is that is coming in to to do this one to do a really big, big, big Marvel movie. It it should be interesting to see this. This one opens uh, November fourth, and uh, I believe that we have it on our film board slate, so we'll be talking about this one. My movie, Andy, is Birth of a Nation, the Birth of a Nation, or written by Nate Parker, directed by Nate Parker, uh, and uh, starring. Uh, uh, Coleman Domingo Army Hammer. So I'm actually very excited about this film. Set against the antebellum South, the birth of a nation follows Nat Turner, a literate slave and preacher whose financially strained owner, Samuel Turner, accepts an offer to use Nat's preaching to subdue unruly slaves. I picked this... Uh, I don't know much uh, about the film. I know that I really like Coleman Domingo a lot. Uh, I, I like just about everything that he has done that I have seen him in. Uh, of course, he was in Selma, uh, uh, the butler, Lee Daniels, the butler. So he's been in a lot of stuff. We we actually, uh, we saw him pass by as Lawson Bowman in 42. So we've, we've talked about a film, at least, that he was in. Of course, he was in Lincoln as well as Private Harold Green. So he's been in a lot of stuff. I really like this guy. I think he's an incredibly talented actor. And so I'm excited to see him, you know, his work in this th- film. Nate Parker, know him more as an actor than as a director. This is his first big feature, it looks like. Uh, he did some shorts, wrote and directed some shorts, but this is his first big one. And um, uh, But we've seen him in uh, things like Red Tails. Did you ever see Red Tails? I did not. That was the first uh, war movie that my daughter saw the trailer for and was like, I need to see that movie. I need to see what that's all about. And just loved it. I mean, just absolutely loved it. He played one of the, one of the pilots, I think. Anyhow, so this looks like a really powerful film, but the reason I picked it was because of that song. Uh, I think in terms of the visuals of this trailer as its own standalone work of art and this incredible rendition of the, um, uh, I think it originally was a Billie Holiday tune. Um, this is, uh, of course, uh, Strange Fruit as performed by Nina Simone, who is uh, one of my all-time favorites. I think pairing that song with this trailer is just stunning. Did it not hit you right where it counts? No, I, she's one of my favorites, and it was a, a perfect way to start this trailer and, and uh, get us into this world. I, I got, It's you know a really exciting um, film, and I'm definitely looking forward to this one. This is uh, you know, the, quite the big uh, stir at Sundance. It won the... Uh, the jury prize, and this is where Fox Searchlight bought the rights to it in a 17.5 million deal, which was the largest deal at Sundance up to this point. So, a huge deal to get this. And um, yeah, I'm quite. I ever since I knew that that happened, I've been excited to see this one. Very much looking forward to seeing how it happens. And I also just love the title, "The Birth of a Nation," which uh, I think in in uh, you know there's a little hint at uh, the D.W. Griffith film that uh, you know came out of nearly 100 years ago with the same name that uh, had an awfully different feel. Ab- absolutely it did. And and so you know I think this looks like a really um, a really interesting one the early early critics who are writing about it so far I mean it's it is just um, slamming positive uh, just about everywhere. So I think uh, I think it's going to be a fun one to watch. Uh, looks like it hits in the USA October 7th 2016. Uh, and then it releases other major countries around the world January uh, January 2017. So, Looking forward to it. Because, you know, Andy, friends can't be perfect. I wish the water wasn't wet. I wish the sky wasn't blue. And I wish that I didn't still love my wife. Life sucks. 
This ain't no game, Flash. Joe Hellenbeck's a private detective who's run out of luck. If you touch me again, I'll kill you. <laughs> two for two. Told you. Jimmy Dix. I like bricks. Is an ex-quarterback who was thrown out of football. Another tragic tale of wasted youth. You're nobody. Shh. Don't tell anyone. They were trying to clean up their acts. You vacuum. I'll dust. When they got dragged into the dirty world of sports corruption. So you're gonna bribe some senators to legalize gambling. Legalize. Sports gambling. Now. Son, we're going to a ball game. Got one shot. What am I gonna do? Point at the bad guys and shoot! To get the goods. Ah! On the bad guys. This once, I would like to hear you scream. Play some rap music. Not <laughs> my days, man. Take your best shot. 1991, Andy, the last Boy Scout. Down and out, cynical detective teams up with a down and out ex court. Everybody's down and out in this movie. Ex-quarterback to try and solve a murder case involving a pro football team and a politician. Film stars Bruce Willis and Damon Wayans uh, as the down-and-out couple, as the the down-and-out love interests of one another. Uh, Directed by Tony Scott and, of course, written by uh, our series uh, subject, Shane Black. Ah, uh, yes. How, how'd, this, uh, how'd this hit you, Andy? Uh, you know, it was. I had kind of a rough time with this one. It's not that great of a movie. There's there's <laughs> some over-the-top action stuff going on in here. Um, on the whole, I don't know. I just, I, I really didn't care for it that much. It, uh, I like the characters to a certain extent. I, I certainly had problems with some of the uh, the characters in the film, um, you know, but on the whole, it's, I don't know, I guess I, I, it was entertaining enough, but not enough for me to really walk away liking it when it ended. I, I, I agree with you. I guess it was entertaining enough. I walked away, uh, not just not, not liking it. Uh, I really didn't like it. I mean, I actively was frustrated by it. And, and I think that's because it, it's a film that just is, has, a lot of opportunity in terms of the buddy action thing. You know, we've talked about buddy cops. Uh, now we're talking about a, a, a retired Secret Service member of the Secret Service and, and how he is he has been um, uh, disgraced uh, in the eyes of his colleagues and the law. Now he's a, he's a, a private eye, and uh, he teams up with the most unlikely of partners, this this foot, disgraced football player. Both of these guys are just wallowing in disgrace, and I think it has such opportunity to be fun, and uh, it, it ends up not really uh, lending itself to having any exciting sort of uh, center. I found myself just getting lost a lot and therefore didn't care. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I got lost, but I certainly share you in the didn't care that much. Um, I, you know, that it is awfully convoluted as far as with the different bad guys. You've got the bad senator that uh, is the one who brought uh, Joe down and got him got him fired from his Secret Service job and uh, basically led him to this life that he's now living. Um, you've got him who's corrupt. You have the corrupt uh, head of uh, the football team. 
in LA and you've got, of course, the, uh, um, the, the bad guy, the, the, you know, evil torturing, uh, you know, cohort who works for, for this guy. And, and it, I don't know, it's, it's the, the way that these bad guys work together. I just, I feel like there's, I don't know. I, I feel like they were trying to say a message at the end, how, how Bruce Willis, who is the last boy scout, how, you know, he ends up trying to help this, this Senator who is corrupt and who he doesn't like because he's trying to bring these other bad guys down and he's trying to save this guy's life. And, you know, I, I guess I can see that, but I don't know. I just didn't feel like it worked for me. Yeah, no, it, it really didn't. And and this is one of the interesting things, because sometimes we try to to sort of, I don't know, read the tea leaves and figure out if this feels like a film where there were too many chefs in the proverbial kitchen. But this film in particular, we've got people who are on the record that say there were too many chefs in the kitchen. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, this was uh, Joel Silver producing again. And uh, Bruce Willis and uh, uh, Shane Black and then, of course, Tony Scott directing it. And I guess Shane Black, not so much. But these other people all certainly got involved trying to make the film their way. And it seemed to become a power play between Bruce Willis and Joel Silver as far as what they wanted the movie to be. Um, I, I, I don't know if I really heard specifically as to who wanted what in the film or or why, but what I did hear was that uh, Tony Scott, um, they basically, you know, he, he was kind of forced into directing some of the stuff that he didn't want to direct um, or get fired. And Willis and Silver really kind of held the reins on how they wanted the movie to get made, which is just, you know, it's a terrible way to have to make a movie. And I, I think when, when that is happening, you have just a lot of, uh, a lot of arguments and disagreements on set. And it just, it, people get confused as to what is the story that we're actually making here. It got to a point where, um, when the film was edited, nobody could tell what was going on in it. And they had to bring on Stuart Baird to kind of re-edit it, to try to figure out what the heck this story was. Michael Kamen hated the movie when he was brought on to do the music and he only agreed to stay on and do it because he had friendships with Bruce Willis and Joel Silver. Although I don't think he ever worked with Joel Silver again after this either. And Bruce Willis refused to work with Joel Silver after this. It was just, it was a mess of a movie. And, you know, Joel Silver says is one of the three worst experiences in his life. Tony Scott said it, the script was better than the film that he ended up making. It just, I don't think people who were involved liked it. And Bruce Willis and, and, uh, um, uh, Damon Wayans hated each other. It's, it just feels like people couldn't figure out what the story was that they were wanting to tell here. That's very much what it felt like. But you bring up that this was, as a Shane Black script, he was paid a lot of money for this film, uh, and uh, that it, it it was a better script than the movie that ultimately came from it. What was your what was your sense of reading through the script? Well, you you say that it was the uh, um, he was paid a lot. Yes, at the time when this came out, he was paid one point seven five million to uh, to write this or they bought this script. It was a, it was written as a spec, paid one one point seven five million for it, which at the time was the highest a screenwriter had ever been paid for a script until that was broken 67 days later when Joe Esterhouse got paid twice that for Basic Instinct. Mm. So <laughs> apparently uh, apparently uh, uh, once you break that break that wall it uh, you know it it comes quick. Yeah, it comes crumbling down to get to the next right exactly. But yeah, so um I did read the script. There are it's odd. There's actually a lot of stuff in the script that 
is just still terrible. And some of the stuff, I, I don't know if it was just Shane Black um, just experimenting a little bit more and just trying to play around with some of these characterizations, but some of the stuff that he wrote really just for me doesn't work at all. Bruce Willis telling the, you know, the, the um, yo mama jokes uh, to get out of the the pickles that he gets himself into a couple of times, they're still in the script, and that's just terrible, terrible stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, some of the, some of the action scenes and some of the setups are in there still, and they're pretty good. Um, the script actually veers off into a, a almost even more confusing territory as we draw toward the third act, when all of a sudden it turns out that the senator's son, who is the person that um, that Bruce Willis had messed up. He and everybody thinks that he's kind of a vegetable. He turns out to be alive and he's the one behind all of this. The senator ends up getting killed and the senator's son is tied into uh, to Marcone and this whole illegal gambling thing. And that kind of becomes another weird uh, angle that we have in the uh, in the script that I thought was weird. Um, they end up taking a trip to Catalina and the whole uh, confrontation to uh, – uh, to get the um, uh, the briefcases, that all actually happens on boats. There's a lot of stuff happening on boats, and that actually made me wonder if some of the changes in the script were made for financial reasons or or what, or if it was just because these guys really wanted to have a big showdown at a uh, a football game, which uh, was not in the script. Um, there's also a much darker angle in the script where. Uh, Milo actually directs snuff films and we see him directing a snuff film um, early or when we first meet him. And then he actually kidnaps Joe's wife and actually is holding her hostage ready to kind of put her into a snuff film. And Joe actually has to rescue her with Jimmy's help. It's a darker film. There is some more interesting stuff between Joe and Jimmy that that gives us a better sense of some of the stuff as far as who these characters are. And that really I liked the sense of the darker place that these two were in they really felt bottom of the barrel and they were both struggling to get out damon wayans i don't think really brought it as far as conveying that kind of level of despair i mean he's got a, a drug problem and all that but i just didn't i didn't buy that he was like at the bottom of the barrel you know he still felt like a rich football guy he's going to all the parties and everything he didn't feel bottom of the barrel like bruce willis feels bottom of the barrel in this film yeah no he was a a fairly significant uh, shortcoming in this film. And that's really too bad. Well, the weird thing about this film is, I mean, he feels like, I mean, he's a comedian, really. And uh, things like Major Pain and Bulletproof uh, and even Blank Man, those sorts of films feel like they might fit his personality a little more. Um, and, and doing something like this, yes, there is that comedy element and everything. And this kind of is, is still some of that struggle I have um, in these scripts that Shane Black has uh, written that we've talked about so far is I feel like there's a weird um, uh, disparity between kind of the the darker tones in the script and the comedy, the light comedy buddy, co- buddy you know, partner sort of story that's going on in them. 
And um, and I think this film and script struggle a little bit trying to find the balance between the comedy and the darker tones. Blank Man, as silly as a film that it, uh, as it was, I mean, that seemed to fit him really well. And I would almost say that that's a little bit of a guilty pleasure for me, although I'd have to watch it again to confirm that. Um, I do find it interesting that Damon Wayans was actually considered for the role of the Riddler in Batman Forever. Considering the tone of that film, I think that he could have kind of carried that um, maybe not as well as Jim Carrey did, but I do think that he had some of that sort of comedic sensibilities that would have worked in in that version of the Batman film. I see what you mean by Blank Man, and I don't want to overthink that film, but I, I think part of what makes Damon Williams work comedically in that film is David Alan Greer. Yeah, the, I think the, the pairing of those guys works really well. <laughs> yes, 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 it does. So anyhow, so that that's a that's Damon Wayans is a is a shortcoming here. And this is, you know, this is a a Bruce Willis movie. And in terms of Bruce Willis playing a, a, you know, down and out uh, detective, you know, you get you get what's written on the tin. He's he's good. I enjoy watching him. He I enjoy watching him even in a bad script uh, or or a script uh, that has been chopped up. Uh, to pieces. I still enjoy him from the moment he throws the the dead squirrel out of the car window in the opening scene when those kids put it on him. I I like Bruce Willis. He's great and he's so good when it comes time to that kind of self-loathing. I mean, oh. when we when we meet him, he sits up and looks in the rearview mirror at himself and he's just like nobody likes you. Everybody hates you. You're going to lose. It's like that's that's great. And that is like a, a moment where Shane Black's writing, I think, really shines. You get this fantastic just little uh, twinkle of this this brilliant characterization of this of this person and just kind of this bad place they're in. And it gives us a great sense of what uh, our character arc is going to be for him. I love it. It feels very much like the guy I grew up with as my, as my action star, you know. Obviously, I like him so much in Fifth Element. I know you're not as huge a fan as I am, but I'd even like him in Armageddon. I hey, I, you know, that that movie has its place. I haven't seen it in a while, but <laughs> I do remember enjoying it well enough. For what it was, I thought it was fun. I liked, how about this? I even liked him in G.I. Joe Retaliation. What do you <laughs> I think? I didn't see that one. So oh! Oh, um, so back to the script just real quick before we move too far uh, beyond it last week we talked so much about how shane black actually writes his scripts the language he uses in the scripts and how his flamboyance in uh in constructing his script uh, comes uh, across on the page did you find that carries through in this script yeah i definitely uh, uh it's he the you know what people call shane blackisms are just uh loud and proud all through the script i mean he he definitely wears his style on his sleeve, and I think that's one of the things that makes him just so much stinking fun to read. Uh, just a couple examples. This is uh, interior, dingy dressing room, night. Corey and Jimmy are engaged in very hot sex. This is not a love scene. This is a sex scene. Sigh. I'm not even going to attempt to write this quote-unquote steamy scene here for several good reasons. A, the things that I find steamy are none of your damn business, Jack. In addition to which, B, the two actors involved will no doubt have wonderful, highly athletic ideas which manage to elude most fat-assed writers anyhow. C, my mother reads this So there. P.S. I think we lost her back at the jacuzzi scene. Suffice to say, they fog the screen. So there's... (laughs) 
there's a good example of him just having a little bit of fun with his script. And then here's here's a nice quick little nod to the reader, which is another reason I think people like to think about his scripts because he's he's acknowledging the people who are reading these things. Remember Jimmy's friend, Henry, who we met briefly near the opening of the film? Of course you do. You're a highly paid reader or development person. <laughs> The only thing that would have made that better is had it been in in all caps, <laughs> like it had been like a like a form, <laughs> highly oh, paid reader or yeah. development person. <laughs> right, exactly. So yeah, he clearly has fun, and it makes the scripts just really fun to read. And you can see why at the time when Joel Silver and people from the studios were reading these scripts that he was writing, that they were interested in paying a lot of money for them because he just makes them so stinking fun. Not just to read, but just they really get you involved. They move you through the story really well. And you've got great characters, great interactions. And I, I think he knows how to write a script. So, I mean, kudos to him for for doing a great job. And I can see why at the time people go, yes, this script is worth, you know, that much money. Yeah, it's it's too bad it came together in such a, a kludgy way. Uh, we do get a sense, though, of a much clearer sense of what it means when Black puts his thematic stamp on on a story, right? I mean, he really loves these stories of of uh, buddies, of the fact that uh, you know, at the end of the film, when when we really have no heroes left, it's the fact that those guys are the guys who are saying there are no heroes left. That they were the heroes, in fact, in the film. It's the the ironic turn of hero. The fact that, you know, it's the the darkest, when we go to our darkest sort of human place, our darkest human failings, uh, that we're able to find our true sort of inner hero. I think there is, there's a, a lot to be said for that. And, and I think it makes Black an ironically optimistic writer uh, when he writes these darker stories. Am I alone? No, I think that uh, I think that sounds just right. I mean, he, oddly enough, in both Lethal Weapon and this script, um, some of the characters talk about the lack of heroes in the world. And then you do have these kind of um, these characters who end up becoming the heroes. And I think that is kind of a vibe that he pulled from kind of all the hard-boiled detective novels that he was such a fan of when he was younger. And, you know, Mickey Spillane, and Matt yeah. Helm and all that sort of stuff. You really get a sense of the, that world that these guys lived in. And and uh, the sense of, you know, people that, I mean, that noirish world always feels like there's no heroes. However, you know, these detectives kind of come through as heroes. And, and I like that he kind of sticks with that. And I really do like that element of the script where it's titled The Last Boy Scout. And you get this sense of Bruce Willis's character, Joe, as this kind of character who really is trying to stand for an ideal. I mean, he did, you know, take a bullet for the president. Um, he, uh, you know, was defending this woman against this corrupt senator. There's a lot of stuff that that gives him this sense of being this last Boy Scout that works really well. And and being a character called the last Boy Scout who starts where he starts, I think is a really interesting way to write a story. What do you think of the the uh, uh, criticism of that that really gained kind of a fever pitch in this film? Looking back on it, of just the straight up misogyny. Um, that it's it is not uh, it, it's not a good film for women. No, it's not. And I mean, you know, that's something that uh, you could say in a number of his uh, scripts. The the misogynism, the homophobia. It really, it really rings uh, pretty loud, and especially in today's eyes. The um, I don't know. I struggle with just the way that the women are treated throughout the script, and it's 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 frustrating that 
they're either cheating on their spouses or they are addicted to drugs or they are whores. That right, seems to right. kind of be what happens here, right? And then they get killed. If they're if they're wonderful and sweet, even though uh, Corey is uh, a stripper, she says she's not a prostitute, she's just a stripper, she ends up getting killed. She's kind right. of the one who's, you know, and... The, the proverbial heart of gold. Yeah, I, I think it's very true. And uh, in, in this particular film, that is just horrible how the women are treated. Even the child, the 13-year-old daughter, um, is, I mean, just she's just a, just a foul-mouthed little monster. And yes, she does end up loving her daddy. And, and there, yes, there are reasons why Joe's wife is cheating. All of this sort of stuff tie into the story. But I, I feel like it's, uh, it's frustrating to see them all in a place like this in this film. I, I agree. It was tough to watch, and it felt really dated. And in fact, you know, when you talk about the daughter, she was for most of the film. She is she's really foul mouthed and horrible, but ends up being a character of of some sort of transformation that that is otherwise lost on just about every other female character in the film. So you know, yay, I guess. Um, yeah, right. It, right. It, it seems a little bit uh, superficial by the time you actually get there, but um, uh, you know, not not quite as redemptive as you want it to be little bit empty. Yeah, Roger Ebert, I mean, he gave this film three out of four stars. He said it was a superb example of what it is, a glossy, skillful, cynical, smart, utterly corrupt, and vilely misogynistic action thriller, which I, I, I feel like it's a weird way to kind of describe it, almost like it's okay to be yeah. um, this misogynistic um, because it's fitting the mold, you know, and I don't know, it was a weird weird thing to say i thought you know i i do and i've been thinking about sort of reflecting on his his comment there because it feels like it shouldn't be a compliment uh it, it really no, feels right. like it's it's the 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 most beautiful way to write a negative review and to give it three stars after that seemed a little bit disingenuous but um i, I you know i'm all about stories that push cultural norms in in negative ways i i am all about those things like i i can get invested in those stories the challenge that i have here is ultimately what ended up on screen wasn't any fun in that regard like there was nothing redeeming about putting those the the female characters in those positions there was nothing interesting about in the story that actually caused me to to care beyond wow this movie was made by guys who just were not were not aware at that point, right? Um, there are plenty of films that actually push those boundaries in a way that makes you think and and gives you a lot to talk about. And in this film, none of it really served the story for me. I'm right there with you, Tony Scott. Yes, R.I.P. Tony Scott. Yeah. Uh, the um, <laughs> like we already talked about how much. Uh, not fun he had making this. I thought it was funny that he actually parodied Joel Silver with the uh, the coke snorting and dealing a movie yeah. producer in True Romance. <laughs> I think that uh, says a lot about his opinion of Joel. Um, you know, I it felt like a Tony Scott film. I mean, I, I don't. I guess I don't have a whole lot to say. But you know, I don't think he had fun making this. I don't think he liked what uh, the result was. But it does feel very Tony Scott. You know, at the same time, it it definitely has. Kind of his action stamp, I thought. Do you have a favorite Tony Scott film? Uh, it might be True Romance. I'd have to look at my flick chart to see. But I, I would say I, I, I'm blanking on them all of a sudden. But it's probably True Romance. They start once you once you start the list, right? I mean, his, the last film he made before he died uh, as a director was Unstoppable. Uh, but Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3, Deja Vu, uh, Domino, Man on Fire, 
uh, spy game. That that's the one for me, I think. Uh, but Enemy of the State um, was a big one for him. The Fan, Crimson Tide, uh, True Romance, Last Boy Scout, obviously, Days of Thunder, Beverly Hills Cop Two, Top Gun. Mine, mine would be either uh, uh, Crimson Tide or True Romance. I think those two are pretty high up there. Spy Game isn't up there for you, Redford Man, Redford and Pitt. I enjoyed it. I I enjoyed it. I I need to watch that one again. I feel like we should take a break. You can go watch it right now. <laughs> I can watch it. Well, I'm doing my Robert Redford series, which I'll get to it. You'll eventually. get to it, right, it's, right, right. It's a right. quite a quite a quite a filmography. So I'm still <laughs> I'm still back in the '60s. All I haven't right, even got to Butch Cassidy yet. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, okay, so there's Tony Scott. Did not get along with anybody, and really, it feels very much uh, like a railroaded film when you, particularly when you talk about the challenges that he had in uh, working with Silver and Willis. Uh, so uh, Bruce Willis uh, also didn't like working with Silver uh, or Wayans, uh, which to nope. me sounds really like he was burying himself, burying himself in the part. Like yeah, he just doesn't like much. anybody, and I feel like that's his reputation at this point. He just doesn't really like anybody. No, it just it really comes across. Uh, you know, I don't know. I there's an interesting element to the relationship with him and his wife, and and the fact that he's distant, and the fact that she's cheating because he's distant. Uh, I, I like that element of the story. I just feel like it uh, it just wasn't handled in a caring way for uh, almost for anybody, but mostly for her. Um, uh, that being said, I do at least appreciate that there was more here and that there was a family element. I thought that was uh, I, it was nice to see that he wasn't just so often you, you got this uh, this kind of rundown detective and it's just kind of a single guy. So I liked that at least he had a family. Uh, and Damon Wayans, you know, we talked about the fact that he was that uh, about kind of where he was in his career already, but uh, and and that he also did not really like working with Bruce Willis. But you contend that he was, you say he was horribly miscast. Dot dot dot, or was he? I've been waiting with bated breath. I think he was miscast. Oh, <laughs> I just, I, I, I. I, I there was a review that I read where somebody was charging that this film was was really kind of secretly a uh, almost a, a I don't want to say a spoof, but just something that was speaking to what so many other people were doing in in action films. This was kind of a, a response, and uh, and that his character. Um, didn't work, but at the same time, that was almost part of its charm. And I, I kind of just completely disagreed with that. I just thought it was interesting that, that you know, there are people. I mean, this film does have its legion of fans. There are, you know, um, definite Tony, Tony Scott fans and just fans of this film who really click with what is going on here. And I think, uh, you know, I mean, kudos to them for really enjoying it and enjoying weigh-ins and everything. I just don't think it worked. I feel like this is a film that screams Wayans taking the role seriously. And the fact that it doesn't communicate well is not a sign that it's a spoof. It's a sign of a miscast. I agree. I, you know, there are some, as a Tony Scott thing, you know, I've got the movie running here in the background. And there he does some just beautiful Tony Scott silhouettes, you know, and he does some some great jump, uh, action jumps, you know. Anywhere Milo comes in and is, uh, you know, the, the initial kidnappings, and I, he's just such a, uh, you know, superficially funny character. Um 
and and maybe he's funny because of the context of a film I genuinely don't like very much. But it, it feels like if you don't watch it with sound, it's kind of a pretty movie. Yeah, I that's, mean, but that's that's kind of, I guess, you know, these directors who kind of came from the commercials and music videos were known for creating pretty pictures. And Tony Scott certainly could create uh, those iconic images. I mean, look at what some of the images are from Top Gun and, and some of those films leading up to this one. He certainly knew how to create the images. And oh, yeah. this film is full of them. I mean, there's a lot of great images here. And yes, I mean, if you're just looking at it for the picture, then there are pretty pictures in the film. That should be a, a log line, right? I mean, <laughs> the left voice get, turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> way, way down. Uh, uh, you like you liked uh, Tyler uh, Taylor Negron, right? I do. I I think that uh, Milo is actually a really interesting uh, bad guy. I I think that uh, that's something that Shane Black has done pretty well in in this and Lethal Weapon, as far as these kind of henchmen. Um, I I enjoyed uh, the previous one, and I enjoy this one. I think that Milo is is just interestingly written. I like his the way that he kind of comes across as almost aloof, almost gay, you can't quite put your finger on him. He almost has this, this air about him where he's just kind of, uh, kind of a part of the, I mean, a part, I mean, I separated from the violence and everything that he's committing. And I think that's really interesting. And I really like Taylor Negron in the film as this character. I, uh, I just, uh, I don't know. I get a kick out of watching him. And Milo is just, I, I think he's just a really interesting character. And I think that he would have made a much more interesting villain throughout the film rather than Noble Willingham as as Marcone or even as, uh, you know, Senator Baynard, Chelsea, uh, Chelsea Ross. You know, I agree. And th- I could not help but think about Javier Bardem. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Because his portrayal of um, uh, Silva uh, in the Bond franchise opposite Craig, Daniel Craig, I found really interesting. And it, it was that, um, you know, adding those, those sort of, he, he is a really bad guy with a lot of uh, <laughs> personal baggage. And uh, I, I thought he played it really, really well. And it's one of those things that that's one of the bits of opportunity that I feel was missed in The Last Boy Scout was they had this raw, they had an actor who could who could pull it off and this raw material of this uh, potentially big bad guy who is complex and interesting. And I think if, they, you know, they it just didn't capitalize it in the end of the film. And they ended up making him a dumb sniper. Like that's the, that's the, the just not a very uh, threatening way to, to compel fear. Yeah. And in both cases, he's, he's brought into the story late, uh, both in the script and in the film. I mean, he comes in in the script on page 72. Oh, I mean, wow like halfway through the film before he actually is introduced. But although it is introduced shooting a snuff film. So, I mean, it's a very interesting way to introduce this character. Um, and that was one of my problems here is I, I as much as I love Taylor Negrin in the film um, as Milo, yeah, I did feel like um, there should have been more of him and more throughout the film. It's funny that you brought up uh, Silva because when you said Javier Bardem, I instantly went to No Country for Old Men. yeah. Yeah, another, I know. Right? It, yeah, it, vaguely uncertain, uh, sort of malevolent character. 
Right. You kind of get this, just the, the, the speech patterns. There's, yeah. there's something about him that just feels off. Yeah, but, you, but you remember that, uh, you know, as Silva, when he looks over and says, oh, look, no, no, look I, at you, barely held together with your, you know, liquor and pills. Like that, just the way he says it and then pulls his jaw out. That's what I wanted. I wanted the last Boy Scout with Silva as the bad guy. <laughs> that would have been a good mashup. Somebody recut it. Oh, there you go. There you go. All right. What'd you think of Halle Berry in this? This is uh, one of the three films that uh, she made in her first year of being an actress. It was better than Catwoman. <laughs> I didn't see Catwoman. I can't say. You know, I enjoy Halle Berry. She's just, uh, I think she's a joy to watch. And even when her roles are not enough, I, I thought that she did a great job here. Yeah, I, I think she did too. It, it Obviously, she was going to be the person who comes out of this film and does something else more interesting. Just looking at the way she interacts with yes. other humans on screen. Yes. Uh, interestingly, though, also Eddie Griffin and Morris Chestnut both pop up in here. And James Gandolfini, all as kind of like bit characters. So it's nice to see that this film actually did spur on some other uh, some other actors. And Andy, I am so excited that we have, I think this is two films in a row that we get to go to the Internet Movie Firearms Database. Oh, yes. Yes, we do. Yeah, this film, uh, you know, like its predecessor, has a lot of weapons in it. In fact, this one has more. This film uh, has 22 different varieties of revolvers, pistols, submachine guns, rifles, carbines, and shotguns, as opposed to 21 in Lethal Weapon. <laughs> this is fun. Are there? Are, do you have a favorite, or is there one that you've already put an order in for? Or no, it, you know, a lot of great things. The the funny thing that I thought was uh, brought up as a little point of trivia on the firearms uh, database website was the fact that the explosion when Marcone opens the briefcase and blows up, um, that was actually later reused. The explosion effect by John McTiernan when he made The Last Action Hero a few years later, which was also uh, co-written by Shane Black. So, uh, Well, how'd it do uh, with the in awards season? Well, it wasn't one that was getting any Oscar nominations. However, <laughs> it did find itself getting two MTV Movie Award nominations, and everybody knows how, how important those are in the film community. And, and what, pray tell, Andy, what, pray tell, did they win at the MTV Movie Awards? Nothing, although it did get nominated for Best Action Sequence um, for its Helicopter Blade sequence, mm -hmm. uh, which we didn't talk about. But it's an awfully gory, <laughs> an awfully gory finale for Milo. Yes, that was uh, splashy. It was very splashy. But that actually lost to the L.A. Freeway, freeway scene in Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which I think is Rightfully probably a fair, so. fair assessment. And then it also was nominated for Best On-Screen Duo, which is really funny considering considering Willis and Wayans hated each other. <laughs> uh, which, and I guess it makes sense they lost to Dana Carvey and Mike Myers in Wayne's World. Yes, again, appropriately so. I, I have to say, though, I can't believe we didn't talk about the one thing that you've been leading up to every week as we've talked about doing this film, uh, which is the football opener. Ah, uh, Yes. That's the one yeah. thing you remembered about the film. Yeah, I, I remembered the opener, and then I remember Bruce Willis doing a jig, and that was pretty much all I remembered. <laughs> the opener of this film, I in the script and in the film, I think is just a, a fantastic way to just get you into the action. You really have no sense as to what's going on or why, but it is a, just an intense an over-the-top uh, football game in the most intense rainstorm I've ever seen. Yeah, it's no, it's like Noah. Like, somebody call Noah. There is so much rain 
that I it's it's hard to believe that any any activity is going on. But you got to describe the football thing and why it is memorable to you. Well, it's memorable because as this uh, this game gets uh, or as the game continues, this player and as we later find out, he's he's knee deep in the world of of gambling of the uh, of football gambling. And he has been uh, mandated to have to run a certain number of yards in order to, I don't know, to make certain uh, gambling deals. Uh, people make money from, from him <laughs> running 150 yards. You're football, big, football, blah, big blah, into blah. football, sports ball, football. Mm, ball, run sport, the ball, pass the ball. He has rah, to rah, do rah. some sportsing and then <laughs> more sportsing <laughs> things have to happen. Yeah. And so... In order for those sportsing things to happen, though, as he uh, he catches the ball from the quarterback who throws him the ball, he grabs the ball and he's running down the field toward the uh, the end, and he pulls out a gun <laughs> and starts taking out the players who are coming at him just so that he can uh, make it to the the goal, the 150 yards that he is supposed to run in this game. And uh, to to achieve the the goal for these gamblers before he blows his brains out, <laughs> they don't. What they don't show you is whether or not all those bets got paid. That's right. Do they still count? <laughs> Do they still count? I, I mean, he may ran the yardage, right? <laughs> and then, of course, the end. And I'm surprised this didn't uh, get nominated for any sort of MTV MTV uh, movie award. Is uh, just the the ramping up the level of patriotism to 11 uh, with the horse. We cut to a horse. We foreshadow the horse. Of course, the horse will be ridden, and the horse is ridden by the redeemed ex-quarterback carrying a football, saving the day by throwing the football impossibly far into the stands to hit the senator, thus knocking him out of the way of the sniper's bullet. And... To, to mad cheers. Uh, it is an incredibly patriotic win for Damon Wayans. <laughs> <laughs> what? I had chills. Yes. So shut up. Yes. yes. Beautiful. Uh, so anyhow, uh, did you, uh, are you ready to option a sequel or is that something that your company does? <laughs> the last boy, the second to last Boy Scout. <laughs> <laughs> but wait, there's one more. <laughs> Anything else we need to talk about, Andy? How did it do? Uh, this film did okay. It really, considering it was uh, the script was sold for as much as it was, I think that uh, everybody felt it was rather underperforming. Although it still made its money back. It opened December thirteenth, nineteen ninety one. It cost twenty nine million to make. I, I couldn't find any prints and advertising, which I think would affect kind of the outcome here because I I almost feel like that would have pushed it into the negative. Maybe um, domestically, it made fifty nine and a half million. Couldn't find any international numbers, so a lot of stuff's missing on this one. But uh, with those numbers, it ends up at an adjusted profit per finished minute of about just under 500000 So I, I'm curious to see how the rest of those numbers would have played in and see if it would have ended up in the red. Yeah, because it feels a little bit artificial. But where does that put it? What does that put it between on our list? It's number 98, right between Escape from New York and The Shining. Well, I think we should probably go ahead and rank it and, and just see. What's going to happen here? Let's do it. All right. Head over to FlickChart, everybody. FlickChart.com. Sign in for your, to your account and do a search for Last Boy Scout. I'm, I'll bet it's even in the database there. I'll bet you can find it. 
And uh, and once you do, you know the drill. We're going to rank it. Filmo a Filmo. The Last Boy Scout versus... Friday night is a great night for football with The Last Boy Scout. We're back to the O Brother block, buddy. The Last Boy Scout or O Brother, where are they? Don't even need to finish that sentence, Andy. Absolutely not. Oh, brother. Yeah. The last Boy Scout or Taxi Driver. I am definitely going Taxi Driver here. I'm going Taxi Driver. Next up, Pete, one of your favorites, the last Boy Scout or the Hudsucker Proxy? Hudsucker. I know you are, too. I actually am. I didn't care for that movie that much, but uh, I would definitely watch it. No, let's let's be clear. This movie has a place on our list. (laughs) I have an agenda with every ranking. Oh, dear. The Last Boy Scout or Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I think I'm Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Oh, boy. I would watch that movie first. I probably would, too. would, too. I know you would. But here's the thing. Despite The Last Boy Scout's problems, I think it does have some interesting elements, some interesting characters, and it's got the best opening (laughs) Maybe not the best opening ever, but it has such a thrilling opening. I give it, I'm going to give it The Last Boy Scout just for that opening because that is an amazing, amazing opening. I'm going to take you to the mat on this one because I don't think we've had enough conflict tonight. Well, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Are you ready? Uh One, two, two, three, three, paper. Oh, suck it. Look at that. Okay. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull takes it, then. <laughs> the Last Boy Scout or The Edge? We'll do The Edge. I will do The Edge. The Last Boy Scout, Pete, or Rush? <laughs> I will do Last Boy Scout. I will do Last Boy Scout. <laughs> wow, we haven't had to rank something against Rush in forever. Uh, probably The Women was... <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so maybe not forever. Uh, the Last Boy Scout or Children of the Corn... I will do the last Boy last Scout. Last Boy Scout. That was a that was a tough Those one. Those are some bad movies. Yeah, there. Stephen King does have some that just don't work so well. Well, and that's it. Last Boy Scout, number two thirty one. Didn't break two thirty. I feel like it should be at least a little bit higher than that. Yeah, that's where you're wrong, Andy. That's where that's no, where it's... you are objectively wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> oh well. Yeah, no, that was good. Uh, I I don't even know what to say about that movie. I'm really surprised at just how much I I didn't like it, given how much I I have fun with um, with Black's writing. Yeah. Uh, and and there were there were a lot of fun Black witticisms in here. Uh, I just feel like not enough of it made it to the screen. That's too right. bad. So what does this do for your uh, for your star ranking? I, I you know I give it two stars. It's it isn't the worst thing that I've seen, but it really is riddled with issues. Yeah, I'm I'm a one star on this one. It's not one I'm going to be putting on again. So um, what does that do for us? One and a half. Yep. All right. That's it. And so now, hopefully, uh, we're going up from here, right? Where do we where where do we go next in our Shane Black series? Uh, the next one in the series is one that I really, really enjoy. It's The Long Kiss Goodnight with uh, Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson. And uh, that is just nothing but fun. I really am looking forward to talking about that one next week. And uh, what's our special next week? What else do we have going on? So that's next week. That's on the regular show before that. Before that, we have our next shorts, our next uh, Steve Sarmento, Three of a Kind. Oh, geez. I better get to editing. That's the truth. <laughs> So, assuming I actually do my part, 
yes, you're going to hear Steve Sarmento on Tuesday and then Long Kiss Goodnight next week. And, uh, boy, clearly, i got to go to bed. All right. Well, I've got to go dance a jig. Uh, I think I'll go first because I have the shorter one. What do you think about that? I think that's that sounds a good, good enough reason. Uh, I this this film has a lot of five star reviews on Amazon. Did that surprise you? I don't think so because, like I said earlier, I, I know that this has developed a cult following. There are definitely the Tony Scott fans who really, really love this film, and uh, I, you know, I guess they are just very vocal on Amazon. <laughs> Well, there's a, there's a real lesson here, kids, is that some cults can be dangerous. And uh, I think fans of The Last Boy Scout may be that cult. <laughs> <laughs> Too judgy? Hashtag judgmental place. Hashtag yes. I am, uh, I'm, I'm writing to you with a response from a customer from November 29th, 1999, who says, this is one of the worst films of all time. Ouch. Format VHS tape. I cannot believe anyone can watch this movie without laughing at the utter stupidity being displayed on screen. From the disgusting advertisements of Marlboros to a script that is beyond description, this movie had no redeeming qualities except for Miss Barry, who is killed during the first 30 minutes. Awful, disgusting, and stupid movie from wow. a, a customer. Mm, what about you? Well, I was going to read a one star. <laughs> But I, I feel guilty reading just two one-stars for a movie that we already hated so much. So you're changing it up now that I've read a one-star? You're making me the guy who piles on? I Yeah, I guess so. Oh, Andy. <laughs> I want to do a five-star. Because <laughs> there's a I lot feel, of them. <laughs> I am betrayed. <laughs> betrayed, I tell you. That's right. That's right. There, You know, it's interesting to look at these people's five stars. They really, really love it. I don't know. I mean, right. uh, go ahead, you big dumb cheater. All right, I am a big dumb cheater. Five star by a customer. <laughs> this is a very. Uh, I worry about this. A customer. A customer I think. has some problems. <laughs> Schizophrenia. Uh, best action movie ever made. I don't know what Jeff Shannon is smoking. I'm not sure who he's referring to here, but his quote review. It was more like slander of the last boy scout was totally wrong headed, wrong headed and a little bizarre. Where does this so-called hatred of women come in? If anything, the film shows that men can be pretty rotten to women and that they stick around because of loyalty or love. What? The movie, the movie is high energy action at its best. And it's a highlight in the now lowbrow genre of buddy movies. Shane Black got his $2 million for this script because it's filled with hilarious, quote-worthy dialogue. Anyone who says they haven't at least stolen one line of dialogue from this movie is a liar. Bruce is at his grumpy, self-hating peak here as Joe Hollenbeck, and Damon Wayans gives possibly the only good performance of his career. Take a seat, pop in this DVD, and have a ball, because that's what this is, a good time. If you're looking like Shannon was for something that will change the world or give you a new view of yourself, Look elsewhere. This is entertainment, pure and simple. And good entertainment is hard to come by. <laughs> you know, wow. 
I don't even know what to say to that. Oh, I do. I, you know what else has a lot of five stars? Tango and Cash. <laughs> you know why? You know why you uh, gave this a one star and you are so low on it, Pete? Because they make fun of Prince. <laughs> I thought we've been over this, Andy. It's always too soon. Thanks for nothing, Amazon. Well, if it's a it's a if it's a host infusion, it's, it's like a virus, Pete. <laughs> and right, I think the jury's out. It's possible that, that we're spreading hate and evil, vile villainy, filth. <laughs> filth. Oh man, the uh, the TNR vacation. So, you're not big on the infusion, transfusion? No. <laughs> the TNR. I take it by the fact that you're continuing to steamroll over my ideas. That's right. The TNR movie club. Who's in the club? It's you and me. We were always in the club. I know, but it's like a book club where we're going out on vacation and we swap movies with each other. You watch this while you're on vacation. <laughs> I'll watch yours. It makes sense. All right. The TNR. <laughs> How about extravaganza? Let's get extravaganza in there. Let's get string into it. (laughs) Film travaganza. Movie stravaganza. Exfilmaganza. It's a filmgasm. Filmgasm. The TNR movie gasm. Viral movie gasm. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if you can tell, but our ideas are getting worse. TNR. <laughs> we go just back to the movie exchange, the movie challenge. Uh, the oh, movie... Yeah, I like movie challenge. Why didn't we think of that? <laughs> Fuck. Uh, TNR, what the hell is the stupid thing called challenge? Or the, the vacation? The it's vacation. a suggestion. It's, uh, well, okay. Let me see if I can rationalize challenge again, though. It is kind of a challenge because we're challenging well, the other person is. to come up with a film in saying... this genre. I'm not saying we can't rationalize challenge. I oh, because we can rationalize challenge. We can rationalize it every day of the week. But are, do we want? I, I guess the question is: Do we care if we have the hashtag guess the movie challenge? And here we are doing this other challenge. Well, we're not putting a hashtag in front of it. That's true. Yeah, right. Maybe Screw challenges. We need it. another challenge. Let's call it the TNR vacation challenge. Okay, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh hell. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, we need to start the show.